Well, again, I'm so thankful to have been invited to this retreat and to be with y'all. I always have to put my little thing in for my church. If you're ever in the Bay Area, come, please visit our church. And if you have a job transfer, looking for a job, please don't hesitate to move to the Bay Area and uh, come to my church. I always got to do that every time I speak at a retreat. But again, thankful to have fellowship with y'all and spend time with you guys. And uh, I can tell, I can tell that the body here is very loving, very warm. And uh, again, that's just so, so good to be a part of and uh, very encouraging for myself uh, to see. Well, turning your Bibles to the Gospel of John and to John chapter 13. And we're merely going to look at this passage just as an introduction. John chapter 13. And let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's day. That we can come and gather together and to be in this retreat site. We thank you for all that you've done for us and just the fellowship and, Lord, just the the growth through your word and the worship. And we pray now that you would, Lord, just bless our souls. We pray that you would be honored and that you'd be glorified. And we pray that as we depart from this place, that, Lord, you would have done something here and that, Lord, you've caused growth. And, Father, again, we thank you that we're here to worship you. Lord, we pray that you be honored and glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When John chapter 13 begins, a, a, a dramatic shift has occurred within the gospel narrative here. And that because the gospel of John can be divided into two parts. The first part comes in chapters 1 through 12, which largely focuses on Jesus' open ministry. In these chapters, Jesus will perform a miracle or a sign and typically provide an exposition on the meaning of that miracle or sign. And much of this was, it was done, manifested before a public audience. And John tells us, for example, that a large crowd had followed Jesus when he fed the 5,000 or that many Jews had witnessed Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. But the second part of the Gospel of John comes in chapter 13 as Jesus' open ministry to the public comes to an end and Jesus' passion begins. And at the start of chapter 13, we are about 24 hours before the crucifixion. And what we find is Jesus privately sharing His heart and that to His disciples. It's one of the most sweetest and intimate scenes within the Gospel story. And John, he, he details it like, like no other gospel writer. John Calvin, he writes that the gospel of John, he, he summarizes in, the, in his introduction, Calvin does, that while the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they show us the body of Christ. Calvin says that it's the last gospel, John, that shows us the very soul of Christ. And this is evidently true of John chapter 13. Notice that we're told in verse 1 that Jesus knew His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, but not without telling us that despite His departure, He had loved His own and that He had loved them to the end. 
And so you see, this is all to set us up that what is about to take place here in the ensuing moments is a manifestation of love. Jesus will reveal with great intensity his true heart and his soul. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus and his disciples, they made their way from Bethany to Jerusalem to a place called the Upper Room. And it was here that together they would celebrate the last Passover meal, but also the first communion meal. The road that they traveled was long, it was dusty, and when they arrived to the place where they would eat, it would have been customary for the host to provide a servant, a servant to go about in the menial uh, and practical task of washing the guest's feet. But when they arrived, there was no servant there. And so you could imagine the disciples looking at each other somewhat nervously. They knew they were going to eat. They knew their feet needed to be washed. But the question was, who is going to do it? Is Matthew going to do it? Is Peter going to do it? Is John going to do it? Look at verse 2 with me. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What I can't help notice here from verse 4 is this, and I want you to see this. I want you to see the manner in which John retells this episode. He narrates it in a way so as to make time slow down. You see, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is going from one town to the next, one city to another. And to move the story along, John says, next day this happened, and next day that happened. John chapter 1, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. John chapter 6, verse 22, the next day the crowd saw that Jesus had not entered the boat. John chapter 12, verse 12, the next day the large crowd came to the feast. And so you find in the Gospel of John, the next day, the next day, the next day. And you see days are passing throughout Jesus' public ministry. But here, the story slows down. And that on a particular day, rather a particular evening, Time is decelerated, and John wants us to capture every, every second of what took place. Why? It's because he understood its significance, and it's because he would never forget it. Well, what did he observe? He observed, and he's watching, that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, washed the disciples' feet, dried them with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. It's as if John had been watching Jesus frame by frame and that rightly. Here is Jesus Christ, the Lord of highest glory, down on hands and knees, washing the soiled feet of his disciples. But as Jesus had done throughout his ministry, the exposition of the lesson, it follows. Look at John chapter 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Well, what is Jesus saying here? What is, what is it that Jesus is calling these disciples to do? To do what he has done for them. It's not literally to take a towel in a basin and start washing feet. You see, we must move beyond the towel to see that Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet there in the upper room was but a symbol, a symbol of what he would do for them the next day in the greatest act of service ever performed, laying down his life upon the cross. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. And how will this Son of Man serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. And so it was not only the greatest act of service ever performed, but to say it another way, the greatest act of love ever expressed. And so what does Jesus want his disciples to do? Follow the narrative here in John 13 and look at uh, verse 34 with me. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus wants his disciples to follow in his example, to follow in his service by loving one another. And here is the clarion call for every single Christian so that the church would be filled with people who love one another so that the people of God would be servants of one another. And you see, Christian, this is the mandate that all of us have from Christ. This is what he means by washing each other's feet. This is what he so desires that we serve one another. This is how we ought to tangibly love one another. And so, brothers and sisters, how have you been loving one another? In what tangible ways have you been serving each other? You know, for the rest of our time together, I want us to take a look at a passage that I think will help inform us as to how we ought to be serving and loving one another. And these instructions come to us from the book of Hebrews. And I said that we would go through Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles. And this is what we're going to take a look at. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. The writer to the book of Hebrews, he writes, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now there's a few things here that demand our attention. Because if we are to love one another, and if we are to serve one another, and if we are to do it tangibly, this passage, I believe, very much helps us. And the first thing he says here is this. He says, let us, let us consider. Notice he doesn't say, pastors, I want you to think about how you can encourage the church to love and good works. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, let the pastors or let the elders and let the deacons or let the church leaders, but he says, let us. Well, who is us? Who bears the responsibility to whom, 
to who has this active ministry of loving and mindfully serving the church, who has this responsibility. Look to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, or therefore, brethren, or better said, if you have an NIV translation, therefore, brothers and sisters. And so the writer of Hebrews is not directing his words to a certain subset of people in the church, but to every single person, to all the people in the church. Let us, let you, let me. This is a biblical mandate, a Christian requirement for every single one of us. Whether you've been a part of this ministry for five years or several months, there, there are no exceptions to this ministry. Whether you're an outgoing socialite or a quiet-to-yourself kind of person, you have a ministry from Christ. And what is that ministry? A ministry of love and good works within the body of Christ. You are all, we are all bound by God and His Word in ministering to one another towards the goal of love and good works. Now, let me be clear about something here. What qualifies you for this ministry? What qualifies you for this ministry of love and service and good works? And the reason why I ask that question is because you can look like a Christian and you can act like a Christian and you can talk like a Christian and you can serve like a Christian and not be a Christian. You can look the part of a Christian and you can do it pretty well and not be a Christian. This ministry is not for you. This ministry, is, this ministry to stir up one another to love and good works cannot be for you unless something has taken place in your soul and in your life. Because this ministry comes only to those who have been given access to the holy and living God through Jesus the Son. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 19 again. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great great high priest over the house of God. And then you'll notice the writer of Hebrews says, verse 22, Let us draw near. So in other words, this ministry is for those who have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of a son. This responsibility of loving good works is for those who have been reconciled to God through Christ the Son to those who have been brought near. And so before you think or consider about any kind of loving or serving, the question you ought to ask is, have you been loved? Have you been served by Jesus Christ? You see, in order to serve your fellow neighbor, you need to understand that you need to be served first. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. See what's happening here? You must be served before anything else. Let me tell you, I've been pastoring for, I would say maybe about a little under 20 years now, and I've seen a lot of people walk away from the church. And when I saw them active in the church, they looked like pretty good Christians. But no longer Christians at all. Because they were never served. They did a lot of serving. But they were never served by the Son of Man. 
You must receive that ransomed life on your behalf. And so before you start considering how to do anything within this church, have you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Him for salvation? And again, I think it's such a disastrous thing to think you're a Christian and not be a Christian. Are you depending upon Christ for His grace? Are you depending upon Christ in this very moment? Can you uh, leave your finger here in Hebrews? Leave your finger. We're going to come right back. And turn to Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a passage that I want to point out to you. I think it's really important. Uh, back in my church, I've been preaching through 1 Timothy. And this is something that I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure to mention. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now Paul says something here that we as Christians often forget. That he was a sinner needing the grace of God every day, every hour, every minute of his life. Now go up to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verse 13. And Paul talks about his life. He talks about what he used to be. He says, I was formerly a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, formerly a, an insolent opponent, a violent aggressor in some of your translations. He was an opponent of God in his church. This is what he was in the past. He is no longer these things. But notice what he says in verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Shouldn't he have said this? Of whom I used to be foremost. Right? He used to be a blasphemer. He used to be a persecutor. He used to be a violent aggressor. And so shouldn't he have said of whom I was foremost of whom I was chief of whom I used to be I mean this is what I was formerly so why does he why does he state in his sinnerhood not in the past tense but in the present tense of whom I am in this very moment chief it's because yes he was forgiven of all his sins past present future Yes, he was justified in the sight of God, but he was still a sinner in need of God's grace. And he believed that there was never a moment and that there would never be a moment in his life that he would not need grace. The ministry of love and good works is not for those who think themselves to be sinners in the past, no longer needing the gospel of His grace in the present. But for those who are trusting in Christ now, for those who are continuing to look to Christ with the eyes of faith now, we have a responsibility towards one another of mutual love and edification. Well, let's turn back to Hebrews 10. And the writer says this, secondly, that this ministry of loving and serving requires 
intentionality. It, it necessitates our thinking. Look at Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider. Let us consider how. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And if you've been in the church long enough, you know that this does not happen automatically. It, it totally doesn't. We are not naturally prone and inherently built to consider other people. We're just not. We are very self-focused. We're very self-absorbed. We're very self-seeking, constantly asking about our problems, my problems, my wants, my needs, and that is no way to live, Christian. That is not a happy life under the sign of God. And I say this because self-centered people are often the most discontented people, right? Discontent with their lives, discontent with their jobs, discontent with the church. Can I ask you a hard question? Are you discontent with your singleness? And can I say something really profound to you? There are a lot of married people that I know that are still discontented which means finding a husband, finding a wife, finding a spouse is not the antidote to discontentment. It's not. The idols of our hearts will never, never satisfy, brothers and sisters. They will not fill the vacuum of our hearts. It's only when we look away from ourselves and to Christ who is far greater and more worthy and more beautiful that we will find joy when we look to Christ. And as we love Christ... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when we stop getting so wrapped up with ourselves and in ourselves, will we then begin to consider others? And this is what God wants from us. And so, beloved, how are you considering with intentionality others within the body? And I'm going to be honest, it's not easy. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take some dying to self. Let me ask you a question. If I chose five random brothers and sisters here in this group, would you know how to pray for them? Would you know how to pray for them? And if not, why? Why would you not know how to pray for them? And if not, it means that there ought to be some considering then a considering of the believers here in this room and in this fellowship group, of how you can encourage and edify and build up and embolden and minister and meet the needs of those around you. You know, one of the questions that I ask our church is if a new person came in through the doors of our church and they came for three weeks straight, would they go unnoticed? And if they did, I, I tell our church, we have a severe problem. No one should ever come into the doors of our church and leave without any kind of interaction, even for a week. You know, I, I know that there are various difficulties of considering others because people are in different, various life stages, and with each life stage comes its challenges. You know, if I were to go from older folks to younger folks, the challenge for those who have grown kids who leave for college and this might be some of your parents. When you move out of the house, is to deal with the void left by the children. And so I counsel a few couples in our church who are older who have kids who have gone out of the house and 
their marriage suffers because they don't know how to deal with the void of their children. Their whole lives are so wrapped up around their kids. So once they leave the house, going to college, they don't know how to interact with one another anymore. We see the challenge for parents not only with grown kids, but with little kids. I mean, we saw Pastor Allen and Barry's kids. I love them, but they're like wrestling on the ground. <laughs> and I love it. You know, when my kids were really little, when they were about two, each of them, when they turned two, they would wake up really early, and I would have to wake up early. And you know where I would take them? I'd take them to the mall at 7.30 a.m. <laughs> Who goes to the mall at 7.30 a.m.? And did you know that the mall is actually open at 7.30 a.m.? The, the main doors of the mall, it's open. All the stores are closed, but the mall is open. And so we just walk up and down the mall, up the escalator, down the escalator, up the escalator, down the escalator. This used to be my life. And um, I know it's sad. And you know it's sad when you become friends with the workers at the mall. So I'll just walk, hey, Bob, hey, Bill, hey, Alan, you know. Imagine Pastor Allen working at Bath and Body Works, I don't know. Would you like to try this lotion? I don't know. Stuff like that. But I think the challenge for young adults and young singles is significant. And it has to do with community. Because obviously, usually for Christian young adults, they've come out of a college fellowship or a college ministry, and then when they hit the working, working life and being at home maybe with their parents or maybe living alone, it's sort of a hard, it's a hard transition, which I think what you have here is but the grace of God. This is like a college ministry here. This is like youth group. And the way you all play games with the little gun stuff, it's like, is this junior high group right now? You know? But again, it is but by the grace of God that you have, that you have this community. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. You go to just another church, and what you'll find in a young adult group is probably like five people, you know? But here you have this community. And I think the struggle for young adults is to find uh, not superficial community or artificial community, but genuine, deep community. And you know where that's found? That's found in the church. It's found with the people of God and with the family of God. And we talked about it last night. If you're a Christian believer, you are in relationship with others. There is community, but it's a matter of cultivating it and embracing it and seeing the bonds that you share within it. And so, as the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider. And he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. It's not just a considering. It's not just a thinking, but a stirring up and inciting to love and good works. And so, beloved, how are you doing that here in this ministry? How are you promoting and encouraging growth amongst the believers here in this room? How do you use your words? Words are very powerful. James, he says that this is the danger for Christians with their tongues. He said, with it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so do you use your words to build up the body here? Or do you use your words to tear down the body? 
Another question I want to ask is this, is exclusivity a problem within the body? Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have close friends within the body. People have close friends. I deal with this issue in my church frequently. It's okay to have close friends within the body or else we would have accused Paul of being exclusive with Timothy and Silas and Luke or we would have accused Jesus as as well with his close band of disciples. It's okay to have close, close relationships and friendships within the church. But I would say, do you use those friendships to yield greater ministry? Do Do you use those friendships for more efficient ministry, more powerful ministry? Is the result of your close friendships within the church helpful to the body or harmful to the body? And it could be two really, really close sisters hosting a game night or something and fellowship together, inviting other sisters and brothers to get more acclimated into the fellowship. It could be starting a book club, reading a book together. I know uh, that the leaders here passed out a lot of good books. Maybe it's saying, hey, let's do a book club. Hey, you guys want to join? Let's read this book and let's get together and let's talk about this book. It could be a few sisters ministering to someone who is in need, maybe for counseling, maybe to be used as a sounding board, maybe for just someone to listen to. There are a whole lot of ways, but again, Are those friendships used to build the church? And so let us be proactive and intentional and mindful on how to go about loving and serving others in the church. You know, I don't know if you've been watching the news, you probably have. It is a horrible thing to be watching what is taking place in Ukraine. And for the last few weeks, I've been able to get a ground's eye view of what is happening uh, through a group of churches in western Ukraine in the city of Rivne. And if you've been watching the news, you'll know that Kiev and the area surrounding central Ukraine has been getting bombed and shelled uh, by the Russians. Well, the brothers and sisters in Rivne, they've been taking this 16-person bus and they've been driving it into Kiev and evacuating other believers and those in the neighborhood of that area of Kiev out and it's a 200 mile trip back and forth and they've been doing it around the clock they've been doing it at night taking different routes so that they don't get caught and they've been able to get about a hundred people out using a 16 person bus which tells you how many times they've been going back and forth and i think it was about a few days ago three no maybe like four days ago that the recent update i got is that they had to stop because the bus came under too much heavy gunfire and it was too much. And they knew that those who were taking the bus, they, they knew that they were going to get killed and it was just way too dangerous. Well, two of the pastors, two of the pastors that are affiliated um, with our church, they, they decided to take it upon themselves to drive that bus into Kiev themselves. And there is a high likelihood that these two men will be injured or even killed well why are they doing this it's because they find it worth their lives and they find it that is worth losing their lives for the sake of others and i think that's incredible let us consider 
not ourselves, church, but let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice thirdly, the writer of Hebrews says here, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. None of this happens when the body is not meeting together. And I think that's why when churches went into a shutdown during the beginning of COVID, I think it was, it was really bad. It was really bad for a lot of people's spiritual health. Yeah, they might be keeping their physical health intact, but not for their spiritual health. You know, one of the great realities and mysteries of the incarnation of God was that God came to us in the flesh. His ministry to us was to come to us in our humanity and to meet with us. He didn't stay apart and disconnected, but he came to us. His ministry was incarnational. And so God intends for his people to meet together and to be together so that we might minister to one another. And that's why it was so critical for the church to continue to gather and do it safely, but to worship together. Not only because we have a divine order from God, but also because when we meet together, ministry happens. When we are together, we are then able to stir up one another to love and good works. The corporate gathering of God's people is so important for you and for your neighbor so that you can be encouraged, so that you can encourage others, so that you can be stirred to love, so that you can stir others. It is essential. You know, in the latest update, again, that I received from the churches in Rivne, uh, it was March 6th, which was a week ago. Yeah, it was a week ago. And... Um, there was a grandmother, and she made her regular 30-minute walk to church in the city of Irpin, which is a, sur- a suburb of Kiev. And during that time, the Russian forces were there, but they weren't going all out with the bombing yet, but they had occupied the area around. And on her way, this grandmother, she was stopped by Russian soldiers, and they asked her where she was going. And she said, I'm going to church because my God calls me to worship him. And the Russian soldiers, they just looked at her and they said, okay, and they just let her on her way to go to church, you know. You see what, nothing was going to stop that grandmother from meeting with the people of God. And that's incredible in the time of war. And that one act of courage and bravery and faithfulness, it echoed throughout a bunch of other churches, including my church to encourage the saints to do the same. And so it's so important that we meet together as a church so that we can do the ministry of the church, so that we can stir up one another to love and good works. Well, lastly, as we close, look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is something that we can never lose sight of or forget, Christian. It will be more important, it will be more 
critical for you to meet together as a church next week than it was today. And as the final day draws closer and closer, the more imperative it will be to meet together and to encourage one another and to love one another and to meet together as the church. You see what the writer is saying here? As weeks and weeks and years and years go by, the more crucial and the more imperative and the more important it is that you meet together. Because it will be more important to meet together next week than it was today. Which means your love for one another then, your, your service to one another, must become more fierce as time goes on. Must become more committed as time goes on. Must become more sacrificial as time goes on week by week by week. Have you considered that? That my love needs to grow week by week for the brothers and sisters of my church. That is what God is calling us to do. That is what Christ is calling us to do. It says, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for the example that you gave to us through your Son, who gave himself, who gave himself, who gave his life as a ransom for many, who came not to be served, but to serve. And we pray that we would imitate our Savior, that we would love others as ourselves. And we pray that that ministry would be intentional. We pray that that ministry would continue to grow and increase. We pray that we would realize the, the responsibility that all of us share in that ministry. And Lord, as we close this retreat, help us to realize this community of faith that what binds us together is just that, our faith, Christ, our Savior, that we are in Christ. I pray that you would use this retreat to draw the saints here in a closer bond, that you would cause this ministry to grow, not necessarily in number, but rather in depth, rather in maturity, Lord, I pray that you'd use the brothers and sisters here to sharpen one another for your glory and for your sake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.